0: Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm, servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Feel
1: your strength and move to victory. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. I am broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. Nobody wants to think or feel that they look stupid, but it is pretty easy to get people thinking that way. Ask any advertiser. They do their best to make you think less of yourself and then offer a so-called solution. That's also how credit cards and auto loans and other types of installment payments took the place of wage increases. Most of you out there don't even remember the day that people didn't need all those loans because their wages kept pace with the price of goods and services. Now it takes two or three incomes and that's not enough because you got to service the debt which almost requires a third or fourth income. So that's also how homeowners were tricked into signing deals that were directly contrary to their best interests most even rejecting the idea that a lawyer, accountant, or financial advisor should look at the deal first. Remember the line? Some of you will. What difference will a lawyer or advisor make? They can't change the deal. The translation was take it or leave it. But if a knowledgeable person had advised the homeowner, they would have left it and avoided millions upon millions of foreclosures and the loss of all the down payments and the money they put into extras and furniture and what have you. And the moment consumers get the first notice that someone, anyone, is looking at them as a deadbeat who is delinquent or in default their first impulse is to run and hide. That's the usual response. Many even hide it from their own families. They have that impulse because they think they did something wrong or immoral, or they failed, and they are ashamed. So instead of challenging the correspondence, statements, and notices, they often do nothing just like the closing of the transactions, where they do nothing except sign where they say, sign this line. And that is the only thing that allowed millions of foreclosures to result in forced sales of homesteads. The reason why foreclosures are happening is not because of defaults. There are no defaults, not without losses. It is because of inattention and shame that those homes are sold. So nearly everyone, even the most rabid anti-bank conspiracy theorists, avoid asserting defenses and claims that are plainly and unavoidably true. They don't want to be ridiculed. They do that because they know the judge is going to react negatively to any hint that there is no loan, no claim, no loan account, no servicer, and no claimant. They are afraid of what will happen next. So their knee-jerk reaction is to say, okay, we won't do that. So most pro se litigants and lawyers for homeowners try to sidestep the embarrassment of being ridiculed from the bench or from opposing counsel, which happens all the time. Here's what happens. They enter into the twilight zone of defense of any civil action, known by many as the yes-but defense. That is almost always a fatal defense. And as millions of homeowners have discovered, the yes-but defense results in a foreclosure sale. That is because you are agreeing that the transaction is a loan, that it is unpaid, that there is a default, that the claimant is entitled to judgment or sale. Naive people in litigation, regardless of whether they're licensed attorneys or pro-se litigants, admit everything necessary that allows and actually requires a judge to order the sale. Then they go on to allege the way that these people got to court was criminal, unlawful, or extra legal. But after you admitted the elements of the case against you, the judge is not paid to care about any of that other stuff. And that is why the yes-but strategy practically never works. I'm sure there are exceptions. It is not corruption or criminality of the courts. It is the rules of court, and they are what they are. No court has the power to change the rules set up by the legislature. And all of that happens because nobody likes a pie in the face. But no successful litigator has ever been afraid of that. They are successful because they are practical. And with decades of litigation experience, they can predict where there will be resistance to the defense narrative that they are advancing for their client. Inexperienced people in litigation avoid resistance. Experienced litigators challenge resistance. That's how they win. If every lawyer, for every defendant, avoided resistance, they would lose virtually every case. People who have experience in litigation, whether they're lawyers or not, never give up on it. And they have a very specific set of strategies and tactics to overcome the resistance. The ones who do that win most of their cases. The ones who don't do that lose almost all the time. So here is the elevator pitch referred to in the title of the show tonight. Successful pro se litigants and lawyers know one thing above all. This case is about winning, not necessarily about being right. So the object is to kneecap the opposition regardless of whether they may be theoretically right or not let me repeat that the object is to kneecap your opposition regardless of whether they might be theoretically right or not so the defense in your case is that there is no claim that the named designated claimant is a nominee and has no claim and that the designated company claiming to be a servicer is not servicing, that is, it does not receive, account for, or disperse payments from homeowners, and has no authority to declare a default, much less prove a default occurred, which is to say that the designated claimant suffered no actual economic injury arising from nonpayment, that can be corroborated by admissible evidence. Yes, you will get a pie in the face for saying that. You'll get a pie in the face for refusing to admit that anything in the case against you is is real. And, of course, many judges will get irritated with you, but you will also be on your way to victory. And eventually potentially removing the mortgage lien from your chain of title. That means not only defeating foreclosure, but claiming the entire value of your property as equity, free from any lien or claim. So be very careful about what words you use. If you refer to your transaction as a loan, the court has no reason to believe that your defense consists of challenging the transaction as a loan. And the court has no reason to accept any arguments or evidence to that effect later in litigation because you already admitted it. If you refer to all the third parties in your transaction by the fake titles that have been given to them by remote, undisclosed investment banks and used by lawyers in court who know better, then when you use those titles yourself of tr- servicer, trustee, investor, etc., you just admitted that those labels are correct. Those admissions will really hurt because if Aquin or SPS, SLS, BHH, et etc, is really a servicer, then it is receiving homeowner payments and naturally, in the ordinary course of business, it is making a record of receipt of those payments. That makes their records admissible or potentially admissible into evidence as an exception to the hearsay rule, the so-called business record exception. Once you admit they are a servicer or a trustee, you are admitting to almost everything. You are admitting to transactions that never occurred. But once you admit it, it becomes a fact for the case at hand. The judge has no reason to rule otherwise and, in fact, is required to accept your admission as a joint stipulation of fact. Those are the rules. If that wasn't the case, no case would ever be over. And that is why courts exist, to bring a final conclusion to any case in controversy. And just to put a finer point on it, I strongly recommend that that any lawsuit that you bring counterclaim, collateral lawsuit, adversary proceeding in bankruptcy court, that it should be brought against the named bank and not that bank as trustee for anything. So if the claim brought against you is U.S. Bank as trustee for the blah 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 trust, pass-through, certificate holders. Just bring the claim against U.S. Bank. This is because the basic premise of your defense is that there is no trust that owns any underlying obligation owed by you to that trust, even if it does exist. Most of them don't, but let's say they do. They're irrelevant if they don't own your transaction, your promise to... It is your secondary defense that there is no underlying obligation owed to the bank. And your third line of defense is that any agency authority claimed by any company that has been designated by unknown parties as a servicer. That designation is irrelevant and immaterial and therefore not admissible into evidence unless the principal, for example, U.S. Bank, owns an underlying unpaid obligation due from the homeowner to that bank, U.S. Bank. There's plenty of support for this, case law, statutes, all U.S. jurisdictions adopting UCC 9-203. That's the law. But you can lose, despite the law, if you make admissions from which the court can presume that all the conditions precedent to foreclosing on the homestead have been met. The only thing that can stop a foreclosure sale is a court order. In a non-judicial state like California, Arizona, et cetera, That court order will only issue in the event that a proper and timely lawsuit is filed uh, as, as a complaint or petition together with exhibits stating one or more causes of action that could produce permanent relief. One of which is initially a temporary restraining order and seeking a permanent restraining order stopping what would otherwise be the automatic sale of the property. Now, you can stop the sale by filing bankruptcy. You can uh, stop the sale if you get some other form of court order. In bankruptcy, you don't possibly realize that when you file the petition, there's an automatic federal stay issued and nobody can do anything against you or your property or debts or whatever. They have to file a motion in court for relief from stay. It is generally not enough to merely file a good-looking complaint or petition. There must be substance to it, and there must be vigorous and aggressive litigation to compel responses to properly and timely filed discovery demands. This is another area where many people simply by ignorance or inattention or a lack of funds, fail to litigate. If you fail to litigate, that's the equivalent of a default. And if you fail to serve proper discovery demands then your ability to challenge the presumptions that arise from what appear to be facially valid documents even though they're fabricated and forged robo-signed, etc. then your ability to rebut those presumptions disappears In judicial states, the banks know things are a lot more difficult and challenging. After all, they know they have no claim. But in order to succeed at foreclosure, they must state a claim and hope the judge will skim the pleadings and exhibits rather than actually reading them. Most people make the mistake of thinking that the judge reads everything. The judge has no time to read everything. Sometimes the judge doesn't have any motivation to read, even if he has the time or she. That's why discovery is so important. Judges don't have the time to scrutinize every pleading, every motion, every exhibit, every memorandum filed by any party. Discovery helps them, teaches them, forces them to look at what you say is important. And you do that in the most respectful tone and manner possible, at least at first. You don't accuse the judge of being stupid, corrupt, criminal, or anything else. And you don't blow up the courtroom just because you lost one battle in the litigation. Nobody wins every hearing. And and certainly nobody wins every hearing completely. Unless, of course, their opponent admits everything. In which case, the case is over but for the signing of of orders. The allegations in any complaint or petition must be case-specific General allegations as to conditions in the industry and history can be used for context, but they are not a short, plain statement of ultimate facts on which relief can be granted. Any complaint containing allegations relating to general industry custom and practice will will almost certainly be dismissed, perhaps with prejudice, which means you can't file it again, which means that your right to bring that claim is permanently barred. So you can use history and general industry stuff as context for what you're saying to make your allegations of ultimate facts upon which relief could be granted, to make that more understandable but you can't use it as the basis of the actual claim. The object of litigation is that your opponents are relying strictly on invoking legal presumptions arising from the apparent facial validity of written documents that are recorded in the chain of title. So there's a bunch of presumptions that pile on to that. But they're only presumptions. They're not evidence litigation will reveal that the opposition is unable to produce any evidence of the existence or status of any unpaid loan account receivable on the accounting ledger of any creditor. Let me repeat that because people just don't get it. If you litigate properly, put it in different words. The litigation will reveal that the lawyer who is representing, who says he's representing a claimant will be unable to get his so-called client, who he's never spoken to, to produce any evidence of the existence or status of any unpaid loan account receivable on the accounting ledger of any creditor. And the reason is that there is no unpaid loan account. And it's because of a lack of knowledge as to Wall Street finance that most homeowners and lawyers, accountants, and even financial advisors can miss the fact that this is a mirage. But if you test the mirage, it's like a bubble bursting. That's my experience, and it's the experience of dozens of other lawyers who have represented homeowners who have had to confront false claims for administration, Collection or enforcement of a promise to pay that they had made to somebody else. And if I had to identify the main reason why so many homeowners fail in their defense of foreclosures is that they or their lawyers project weakness. Weakness. They project weakness the central issue. Does the loan account exist? Is it unpaid? Has a default occurred with respect to the named designated claimant? And the answer to all of those, all of the above, is no. They are weak on the issues of whether or not the unpaid loan account receivable exists. They're weak as to who actually claims to own it. They're weak as to who is actually authorized to represent the named claimant owner. And they are extraordinarily weak on opposing the admissibility of a payment history in lieu of an actual loan account record, starting with the origination of the loan and showing all debits and all credits to the loan account bearing the name of the homeowner. That loan account doesn't exist. That's why they use the payment history. Payment history was uniformly rejected until the era of securitization. You had to show the record of the account, not a report of the payments, because that doesn't tell you what the balance is. There could be many things that affect the balance. The other crazy reason why homeowners lose is A, government regulators have failed to confront the absence of any legally recognizable claim when they have sanctioned or entered into settlements with people and companies that were falsely labeled as legitimate players. And then homeowners, angry and fuming from government inaction, refuse to pay anyone who can help market value fees to protect the largest asset they have. So anger and shame combine to produce the sale of their home. So the bottom line, for many of you who have asked for it, is that if you're looking for a quick down and dirty pleading that you could use to block the sale, the answer won't be coming from me. The only thing available for such purposes is a skeleton bankruptcy petition. If you qualify, that must be completed within a specified period of days after the filing. I do believe that the administrative option is a good one, regardless of the stage you're at in the foreclosure process. It's especially good in... preparation for filing a general lawsuit, or just a lawsuit for violation of the FDCPA and RESPA, By asking questions about the existence and authority over a specific unpaid loan account receivable on the books of an identified creditor, you can establish that no response was forthcoming. This establishes a foundation for a claim of violation of the FDCPA and respite, but if time is running out, you need to engage your local attorney to file something in state, federal, or federal bankruptcy court. The most important thing to remember and take away from this part, and assume you are strong, that you are in a strong position, and stop avoiding a fight that you can win. And always, always pursue the offensive strategies, not just the defensive ones. While the opportunities for doing this are often limited to after a foreclosure is attempted, whether it succeeds or fails, the net result can free your title or produce a damage award from a a party with very deep pockets pockets. If they already sold the property, that money is yours. Why? Because nobody is entitled to recover more money than what was owed from the homeowner. There are many grounds to seek damages from these parties, but you have to identify the main controlling party, even if they are not the owner of any claim, and that controlling party is always the bookrunner investment bank. That's it for tonight, folks. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next week
0: the opinions expressed on the neil garfield show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities for more information about neil the blog or upcoming seminars please visit livinglies.me give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com thank you for listening to the neil garfield show If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me. plus.